Well, hello. Welcome to 2016. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, January 7th of 2016, and this is episode 8 of Garbage. Alright, so on this week's episode, we're going to do a uh, little synopsis of what's been happening in OpenBSD this week. We've got a couple interesting topics, and also I have a uh, new piece of hardware that I'd like to talk about. And then, uh, JCS, you want to do an update on your trackpad driver, right? Uh, yeah. Alright, so there's many interesting things that have been happening in OpenBSD lately. Um, probably one of the more interesting things is that um, there's been some good developments in the browser front. I think it was this week that uh, Chromium got pledged. And... Um, for anybody who's curious what that means, basically OpenBSD has this thing where um, the application launches and starts up, and then we pledge the application so that it has less and less um, privileges on the machine. And so Chromium has been uh, one of the bigger things that we've pledged. Um, there's a lot of applications in base that have had that done. So Chromium has less access to your system and your resources after you launch it. So that's kind of a really good thing. And also, um, Firefox has, um, I think they've made it the default now to have the um, XOR set in it. Um, I think I think maybe that was last week sometime where they said, we've been running um, the XOR for a while and we're um, excited about making it the default. And so um, now when you're running uh, Firefox anywhere, I think, um, you get that kind of benefit of having memory that's either writable or executable, but not both. Yeah, I think it was um, Theo who said it's kind of weird that Firefox has that protection, but no privilege separation. And now Chromium has the privilege separation with Pledge, but no write XRX. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's hard because I want to have. Um, I want to have a platform that actually gets everything right, and none of them do. So there's compromises and trade-offs and everything. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wish that I could say, I, I always sound so negative. I hate to talk about bad stuff. Hey, this is garbage after all. I, I, we talk about technology. It's <laughs> bound to happen. Like, But I was using Chromium and OpenBSD, and um, I forget what I was trying to do, but Google Chrome didn't do what I needed it to do. So I had to um, pull up uh, my other computer, and my other computer runs Google Chrome, and the things that I was trying to do actually work in there, but um, it didn't support something else. <laughs> and so I literally needed two different computers running Google Chrome in order to, to accomplish a specific goal, and it, and it drives me absolutely crazy. I mean, some websites just don't work well, in Google Chrome, like I, I pulled up a site today and the page just crashed my browser. I'm giving it something like four gigs of memory or something like that. Mm -hmm. And every time I went to load this page, it crashed. So I opened it up in Firefox, running under similar, you know, U limits, and the page works just fine. <laughs> so browsers are driving me crazy. But anyway, I don't want to dwell on that a little bit too much. Yeah, I mean, Firefox used to crash all the time just because it would crash. And um, since I've been using it on my uh, new laptop, um, it rarely ever crashes. 
And I think the only time it does is when it finally does hit the, the large U limit. And that's, you know, if it's been running for many days at a time. Yeah. But even like Firefox on my Mac, after a few days of it running, it gets so slow that you just have to like close it and reopen it. Yeah. On the topic of browsers, um, Adam Wolk, he has been porting um, the Otter browser to OpenBSD. And um, I found it kind of interesting because it links against or it makes use of LibreSSL. And I thought that was pretty cool. Hmm. And uh, they're doing a lot of really active development. Um, I can't really tell you too much about the browser. I haven't investigated it too much. Um, but I do know that it uses Qt5. And the developers are really active. And um, it wasn't quite um, usable for me. Two weeks ago, I think they had a, a, bit, a beta release. And um, I was like, eh, I can't do the things I need to do in it. Um, like even doing web development, it wasn't stable enough. Is it like their own rendering engine or is it just using like WebKit or? It's using WebKit and I looked at the site and I think they're trying to make it look like um, Opera 12. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it doesn't look terrible and it doesn't look wonderful. It's, I mean, I, I think it's fine. But uh, I was using it today a little bit at work, and I did some web development in it, um, you know, inspecting some requests go back and forth. And um, it's definitely starting to be more usable now. Um, hopefully it won't be one of those, you know, like other web browsers that come out that get 1% adoption and then they get kind of stale and then they are completely useless. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, now we have another contender that starts to be more usable. The development team seems to be on their game and fixing things, and, and they're definitely taking uh, Adam's work and um, putting it back into the, the the source itself. So it's not like Chrome, you know, where they say this isn't supported. They're, they're adopting the changes. So the diff and the patches in the ports tree are less and less, which is good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the uh, servo project that Mozilla is doing, where they're writing the um, like entire rendering engine in Rust. Yeah. So it's not just like a, a new um, interface on the existing like um, WebKit or whatever code Firefox call it, or like whatever engine uh, Firefox uses, um, but it's actually like a new entire engine that's going to be written in a different language other than C or C++, and then it can be uh, ported to a lot of other systems. I think they're like uh, going to be using it on Android as well. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd love to see that. I know that Rust has been um, pretty popular lately. I think a lot of people have, who have started using it really, really like it. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't seem to have the same abrasive nature that Go did with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I think like half of the problems that people have with Go are just like the community. Mm -hmm. Like people are, I don't know why, they just don't seem to fit in with that community or the way that Google is kind of like taking ownership of the project or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it, you see that in practically every programming language community. Like a lot of people hate Ruby just because of all the hipster Ruby developers. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. I, I really would like to see some good developments happen in the browser platform. If we could make something that's privilege-separated and 
has XOR working properly and has sandboxing, um, pledged, all that kind of fun stuff, makes use of good uh, crypto, I would be really happy to see that. Um, but it also has to be usable. That's the problem right now is we can't boycott things um, like Chrome because, you know, Google doesn't want to support it because there's really no strong, viable alternatives that completely replace it for me. Why doesn't Firefox work for you? Well, I, Firefox has been really dog slow for me lately on OpenBSD. Um, especially when I, well, the, uh, to be clear, the, the ESR version works pretty well. Um, but for instance, if I go to watch, um, a video on the internet, it's, uh, slow and laggy and glitchy and all that kind of stuff. So, um. Oh, is that the issue that they were talking about on ports? Yeah. So it's like a recent regression with something to do with, um, was it threads or locking or something like that? That's what it looked like. Um, yeah. MPI was kind of pointing to the fact that uh, it may have tickled a bug in our pthreads, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Or maybe a spin lock. I, I can't remember the details of it, but yeah. And then and then there was another thing mentioned where it was making, you know, something like 70,000 sys calls in four seconds or something like that. And it's probably a combination of all the above. Yeah, I still haven't heard back about the, uh, or heard anybody else follow up about the um, post I made about uh, MySQL, or uh, I guess it's MariaDB now, but it just like spins and uses 100% CPU on current, and no one else seemed to say anything about it, so I don't know if it's just uh, the setup that I have on my laptop, which I guess is like a simple one, uh, basically out-of-the-box config. Um but when I started looking into that and tracing it, it, it was kind of doing the same thing. It was just making syscalls over and over again. So uh, I don't know if it's related or completely unrelated. Yeah, it'd be good to iron those kind of things out. Yeah, especially before the next release. Yeah, I haven't seen anything on Postgres. Um, I've been using that, and I just upgraded a snap on a production machine at work, and I haven't seen anything like that there, so... Yeah, I guess I'll have to look into that more. Yeah. Hey, did you hear that um, OpenBSD is also now the ultimate gaming platform? No. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, that I'm, sounded like a commercial. Hey, yeah, did you hear? Yeah. I, I kind of want it to be because I, I think this is great. Um, somebody ported Doom 3 uh, to OpenBSD, and... Um, so I had to, of course, build that, and I'm going to try and play it when we get done recording tonight. But uh, <laughs> I always kind of, um, I laughed because people have been picking on Linux as a game platform lately. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, I forget the gentleman's name who wrote uh, Doom 3 and Quake and stuff. The guy who wrote those games, um, he kind of picked on Steam a little bit, and he said their Steam's biggest problem with having um, this gaming platform that they're working on is going to be Linux. Um, and it's just, it used to be an okay gaming platform, but now it's really, really not. And it, and, uh, from what I've heard, OpenBSD has been playing these games great. Um, so we've got the Intel DRM and all that kind of stuff working well. So perhaps now OpenBSD is the ultimate gaming platform. <laughs> Were you thinking of John Carmack? Carmack. That's what it is. Okay. I don't know if there was somebody that was involved with the newer Dooms that I wasn't aware of. 
No, that's the guy. But yeah, I think that hit the tree, in, what, last week, five, six days ago. Mm -hmm. So um, I built it today and um, getting ready to fire it up here shortly. Did you, uh, by chance, on the topic of games, listen to the uh, BSD Now podcast with the guy from Sony? No, I haven't. Uh, it's pretty good. The guy um, is... He was like a technical lead or something on the um, project to run FreeBSD on the new PlayStation, and he's involved with the um, the like Clang project and stuff. So he was talking about how um, he got all of that stuff kind of brought into Sony to uh, use as their new platform for the PlayStation. Hmm. And um, something that struck me in the conversation was that he said that um, most game developers used to develop everything on Linux and that now they're kind of moving towards Windows. And so there was something with uh, that compiler that they needed to like integrate with with uh, Visual Studio or whatever. And I was thinking, how can all the game developers develop everything on Linux, but the like Linux gaming platform itself has been so crappy for so long? Yeah. Like I know, I know that it's different, you know, developing on a Linux workstation for a, a platform that isn't at all like your workstation. But I figured if all of them are running Linux anyway, you'd think that they would want at least something to work on their own works on their workstation to play with or whatever. Yeah, that's pretty strange. Is that um now what what was the article? There was something recently too that talked about FreeBSD nine being on the PlayStation four. Yeah, that's it, because they were able to basically get root privileges on it, mm -hmm. which was kind of funny. Because I think that the, they recorded that uh, episode before all that stuff came out. Yeah. it. I'd be kind of interested to learn why they chose the FreeBSD 9 versus some of the newer stuff. Yeah. Well, like, there's, you know, security protections in newer FreeBSD. I don't know if they're all enabled by default or whatever, but none of them were on in the FreeBSD that ships on the PlayStation. Um, but when you think about it, it uh, the platform that they're making for game developers is to be as stable as possible. Mm -hmm. And you don't want some game triggering a weird memory issue that, that like crashes in the middle of playing it um, just for the sake of security when the only thing that's really running on the the entire box is that one game. Yeah. So I could see why even if they had those like ASLR and everything available to them, why they would maybe disable it for their, uh, for their platform. Yeah, for sure. I kind of want to have a little confession here. Um, I realized after we kind of had a few podcasts that I, I'm definitely a gearhead and I keep buying more hardware <laughs> and uh, most of it winds up sitting in a pile <laughs> which is really sad but um what is on the top of your pile yeah the top of the pile right now is an nvidia k um uh an nvidia tegra k1 and um it's basically an arm board it is very fast has 192 gpus and um i guess i'll try and justify my rationale um behind this so my acer chromebook um, runs the same system on chip and, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And, uh, it's really hard to work on ARM stuff on a Chromebook because you don't have a serial console. You have to get the keyboard working. Simple, uh, frame buffer has to work and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so I figured, 
Um, this TK1 board is $100, and it's got serial console, gigabit Ethernet, all this kind of stuff. Maybe it'll be easier to take the NetBSD and FreeBSD work on this development board and get OpenBSD working there where I have a serial console and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then I can move it to the Chromebook later on. And, uh, yeah, that was my logic behind it. <laughs> I think it'll be just another arm board that I have sitting in my house, um, sadly. But I have done a little bit of, um, investigation into, you know, drivers and bringing this particular board up. And mm-hmm. NVIDIA wants people to port things to it as long as it's Linux and Android. So, so not free, not OpenBSD. Yeah. I mean, it, it's cool. They set up um, forums and they have a hardware bring up guide hmm. with pretty detailed instructions. You know, start this clock, start this thing, right. pickle this. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that's that's cool of them. But um, it's mostly geared at uh, Linux and Android, I think. So. So what else is in your pile? Yeah. Well, too many things to mention. Well, I mean, I bought the graphics card not too long ago. Um, mm-hmm. the Radeon graphics card, and I still haven't done anything else with that, even to try and get it to attach as a uh, VESA or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, just a bunch of little arm boards and that kind of stuff. I think uh, my problem lately is I've just been really burned out. I've been, um, and I let it go too long. I didn't take care of it early, so this is going to be like a really severe case of burnout for me. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, um... I'm I'm just giving up really really easily and frustrated and fed up and I didn't take enough time to just you know walk away from things and clear my head and enjoy life and now it's it's going to take some undoing. Yeah. Have you ever uh burned yourself out pretty severely? Um not really. Uh and I think that's largely because I've been self-employed for the last like 8 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, so my days now are like relatively stress-free. Um, and I mean, there's a downside to that. I don't have any coworkers and I can't, I don't have anybody to go like shoot the with and bounce ideas off of and stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in my old job where I had a lot of, uh, responsibilities and lots of projects and stuff, uh, I guess, I don't know if it was burnout, but just, uh, a whole lot of stress and then when i got home the last thing i wanted to do was uh more programming and stuff yeah well to our listeners if you guys have uh struggled through burnout or (laughs) been there um man i the first few times it happened to me i didn't even know what happened Mm -hmm. and um thankfully i had some good people around me who were like why don't you take a a couple days off and and uh they were you know, talking me through kind of what they perceived as having happened without, you know, really making it uncomfortable. So, uh, and, and then the past couple times I've recognized it coming on and, um, I was able to kind of walk away from things and, and take care of it. But this time I'm, I'm really cooked. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm, I, I know what I need to be doing, but unfortunately, I still have more obligations at work uh, that are going to have to be taken care of. and uh, But uh, it'll be okay. I mean, it always is. I know, like, um, you know, I've talked to a couple people who are like, 
yeah, it takes me about 18 months and then I bounce back and mm-hmm. I, have, I have a feeling that this will be probably one of those where it'll be a long time before I'm, you know, passionately doing things and effective at doing them. I think that's one of the, the biggest signs um, for me early on when I'm burning out is, um, you know, when you're working through a problem, instead of like trying things and troubleshooting things effectively, you just like can't do the most basic things. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's what I notice about myself anyway. And, um, and then from there, it just starts to be like a really kind of defeated attitude where I don't want to do anything and I don't want to look at anything. And I start to hate everything, even things that I used to really enjoy. And right. So anyway, that is, uh, that is the horrible path that I'm headed down right now. I was working on, um, some Arduino projects and then I was mad at the Arduino IDE <laughs> and, um, and it, it was just really frustrating that I couldn't take an example that they had given me and even get it to compile. And that's when I was kind of like, dude, I'm, why am I trying to do stuff like this when I'm burned out? I know that I should just right. be riding my bike and doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, hopefully soon, like I went to add device IDs to that graphics card and like three hours later I was sitting there going, what was I, what did I sit down to do? Yeah. And it was just me ignoring the problem and not wanting to do stuff. And Oh, that's, that's the, that's the telltale signs for me, I think. Yeah. You need to hand off more stuff to your uh, intern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or get more interns, acquire more interns. Yeah, he's actually doing really well. Um, it was, it was eye opening this week or this past week where I started to give him stuff and I said, you know, you need to sit down and learn how to debug and troubleshoot on your own. And for someone who's still in high school and he's written code, but he doesn't have, I mean, he's really green. Um, to have to explain the troubleshooting process and how to diagnose something to someone who really doesn't understand how to do it, um, it was mm-hmm. kind of eye-opening. I'd, I'd forgotten what it's like, you know, for people who really have never seen that kind of thing before, how to walk them through that process. Right. So, but he's doing a good job, and after um, some really stressful moments of him not being able to figure things out and me helping him think through things... Um, he was actually really, really, really excited because he got some things working and he's, you know, sitting over there just uh, ranting about how rewarding it was and how gratifying it was to see this thing working now. And so it was refreshing to see that. Yeah, your uh, thing about trying to explain to somebody how to debug problems, it uh, reminds me of that quote or that whatever about... Um, where like you call an an expert, he comes over and he fixes it in two minutes and hands you a bill for a hundred dollars. And it's like, what? You didn't even do anything. And it's like the actual time was like 5% of the bill. And then like knowing which, you know, where to look immediately was like 95% of the bill. It's <laughs> like, you just have all that experience with you and it just accumulates over the years. And it's kind of hard and, uh, it takes a lot of time to pass that on to somebody else. Yeah. It really does. It, it's not something that's taught. I mean, you really, um, you really just have to, to do it. And I think like 
that's one of the things I was trying to explain to him. If I explain to you that you have to call request.send, you'll never remember the next time you implement one of these that, you know, you need to look to make sure you're actually calling send for the message to go in. Mm-hmm. And that sounds really simple and straightforward, but, you know, once you make the mistake and you troubleshoot it and then you figure it out, the next time you'll be able to say, ah, let's see if I'm even sent, let's make sure that if I'm even sending it and, you know, it'll be pretty well ingrained at that point. Well, I hope uh, things get better for you and you're able to minimize your stress and get back to fun things in the future. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm sure it will be. I I need to do the right things um, to get myself out of the rut, which, like I said, I couldn't. I can't quite do right yet, but they're coming. Yeah. So, um, tell me about this trackpad. I'm uh, excited to hear what's happened in the couple weeks since we talked last. Yeah. So in episode um, six, uh, my driver for the trackpad on my new laptop was able to find the controller from um, the device definition in ACPI. Uh, so it was able to get like the memory base address and the interrupt information, but I couldn't get any data from it. And then mm-hmm. shortly after we recorded that episode, I realized that um, I needed to call the the power method for the device in ACPI to actually mm-hmm. turn it on. And uh, so once I powered the device up, I could actually get... Um, packets from it and stuff. So that was in episode seven. So that was a few weeks ago. And since then I've been working on it kind of, uh, here and there, like almost every day, uh, which seems like a lot of time, but again, it's trying to do all this based on like the Linux driver with no documentation and the, and the drivers in Linux have like no comments in them. So they don't really explain like why they're doing certain things. So anyway, over the past few weeks, um, I've gotten everything working to the point where um, I can touch the trackpad and click, and it works in X. So the like process of getting to that point has been long and arduous. <laughs> but uh, so the I2C controller is hanging off of like the ACPI bus basically because there is no bus. It's just like that's where it's getting the device information. There's no like PCI bus that it can probe and and get all this from. Mm -hmm. So that driver is working in polling mode and interrupt mode. And so it, it has to support both because eventually like there will be a keyboard attached to this, uh, like I2C controller on some future system. And when you're using like, um, DDB or something like that in the OpenBSD kernel, you can't use interrupts, so it has to use, um, or it has to support polling mode where it can just, um, wait and get the new, like, key or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I had to support, uh, polling, obviously, and then the interrupt mode that the Linux driver supported was, uh, it's like really weird and complex the way that they were doing it, but it's basically like, uh, you send a command to the controller and then you um, wait for an interrupt to come back where the controller says, okay, I got that, that byte and you can write another one. So it has to keep like flipping back and forth between like giving it commands and then waiting for them to be read and then, uh, read the result. So that's all working. And the process of doing that, 
I found a bug in our um, IO APIC driver mm-hmm. for AMD 64, and I guess it's also on um, 386 as well. But um, once I got all this working, first started getting it working, I would notice that the interrupt handler for the trackpad device would fire continuously until I touched the trackpad, and then it would stop. So it was like the reverse of what I needed. Yeah. So I was um, doing some reading and uh, came across this page on some guy's weblog entitled um, Everything You Know About Interrupts is Wrong. And it's like the whole history of how uh, interrupts worked on like the original 286 and stuff all the way up to how they work now. Mm-hmm. That kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of like looking at how the uh, how the um, APIC controller works and how you program each pin. Um, because in the ACPI definition, it just gives me like a number of the interrupt, which for the trackpad is like 31. Mm-hmm. And then you just register that. Uh, with the APIC and say, like, hook this up. And so whenever this um, pin has an interrupt from the hardware, run this um, interrupt handler, like, in my driver. I was looking at the, uh, the like, bits of each pin that you, that you register with the APIC, and one of them is the pin polarity. And so you can set it active high or active low. And so the... That tells it whether to trigger the interrupt um, when the voltage is high or low. And I figured out that the APIC driver on OpenBSD, when there's no um, information, like no settings for the pin that came out of the BIOS, which mm-hmm. in my case there isn't because I'm getting this, I'm like registering the pin manually based on what I got from ACPI. Mm-hmm. When there's no information from the BIOS, it defaults to active high. And I needed it to. I needed to configure that interrupt for active low, and so that explains why the interrupt uh, handler was being called when I wouldn't touch the trackpad. But then, as soon as I touched it, it would stop because yep. it was firing the reverse way. So I talked to uh, Mark Katanis again and asked like how to figure this out. And of course, he had like a tiny one-line diff uh, that he actually mailed out today um, that fixed it. Because I just had like a hack in there that said if I was registering, you know, uh, interrupt 31, then t- configure it low. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that um, has all been figured out, and now the interrupt is working properly. Yeah, so that's the controller level, and then the um, HID driver underneath that, that basically gets an interrupt anytime the HID device, which is the trackpad, has um, new data, it... Uh, fires an interrupt on the HID device, and then that has to tell the I2C controller to read all of the, um, or basically like read the HID packet, which yeah. is like a series of like, I don't know, 20 some bytes. And then, uh, once the HID driver gets that data back, uh, it just uses all of the HID stuff that's already in the kernel for, um, USB HID devices. So I'm able to attach the same HID device underneath my HID driver for like the mouse and in the future there'd be a the HID keyboard. So um, that is all basically working and now I'm able to move my finger on the trackpad and the cursor moves on my screen. That's which really was awesome. uh, very exciting. The host name of my laptop when I was first setting it up I called it pointless.superblock.net 
because it had no pointer because the trackpad didn't work. So I'm going to have to come up with a new name now because it actually has a, uh, a pointer. And I can finally untether myself from this USB mouse that I've had to use for the last few months. Yeah, that's awesome. I was actually, um, you were, you were talking about the, um, SPI or the I2C, um, like protocols and stuff. And I was kind of working on that a little bit, uh, this week too with my Teensy. I was trying to set up, um, again, some, uh, I2C devices like a temperature sensor or a barometer. And I had another one that was an, um, uh, SPI device. But anyway, so I started to research how, um, all these devices work because there was a huge big driver and I was like, I don't really want a huge big driver. I just want to, you know, know how this works so I can do it myself. And it, it sounds really similar to what you have, except you have to go through different layers because it sounds like your interrupt is basically like an operating system, like just something so the oper- operating system knows, hey, you need to go consume this data or trigger this transfer between whatever is uh whatever device is generating this information and then get the data out of there mm-hmm. and do stuff with it whereas mine is just kind of like hey you have an i2c bus and it's going to get data and you basically have to you know consume it and do it um, on its own although i would like to have my uh spi device trigger an interrupt so that i can have like um it's a touch screen mm-hmm and I want to have it go to sleep, and then when I touch the touchscreen, I want to have it send an interrupt and wake everything back up. Yeah. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, that's possible um, with the TMZ. So I want to do something um, so that I can save a little bit of power and turn the displays down so they aren't blaring all night long while you're trying to sleep. And then in the morning, you can touch the the touchscreen and have it wake up, and you can kind of look and see where your power levels are, are at and all that kind of stuff. So interesting stuff. Um, with I2C and SPI and writing drivers in OpenBSD. Yeah, it's been uh, a long journey, and I because I have no, I had no idea what I was doing at each step of the way. <laughs> um, partly because I don't know the kernel as like a lot of the details of the kernel. Like um, it took me a while to figure out how to set up uh, where each device is supposed to attach. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, like this stuff with all the interrupts, like I didn't really know any of that about how interrupts work on a modern PC, mm-hmm. but I had to go figure all this stuff out. You know, you figure this stuff out and you're like, why isn't it working? And the last thing that you think of is, oh, maybe there's a bug in the driver that's already there that everyone <laughs> is using, you know? And it's like, what are the chances that the problem I'm having is because there's a bug in this driver and it turns out that that's what it was. Yeah. Those are, um, those are famous last words, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, right now it's attaching like the basic, uh, hid mouse. So the like configuration that it's using right now is, um, kind of a u- universal one where if you touch the left side of the trackpad, it's button one. And if you touch the right side of the trackpad, it's button two. That's like all kind of done inside the trackpad itself. What I need to do now is write a new driver that would sit uh, underneath the I2C HID driver that I already wrote that will basically talk to the device in a more like complex way mm-hmm. where it can actually get like multi-touch uh, data and do like two-finger scrolling and all that jazz. Yeah. But the good news is that the configuration that it's going to be using for that 
is the um, I was looking at the way that Linux does does it, and they have a hid driver for that, and it's some like Windows 8 or Windows 10 compatible trackpad interface. So I guess Microsoft basically like told all these vendors you need to start implementing this same protocol in all of your hardware so that we can write the device driver because you guys all suck at it. So all these new laptops are basically like conforming their hardware to the same specification. So once I finally write this driver for multi-touch stuff, it will just work on um, hopefully a lot of trackpads other than the one that I'm, the particular one that I'm using. Yeah. Awesome. So that's cool. Yeah. So, um, I kind of wondered what is the, what does the data stream look like coming back from the touchpad look like? Um, it's only like eight or 10 usable bytes that come out of it. Mm -hmm. So if you enable, if you have like a USB mouse and you turn on debugging and tell it to like dump the packets that it gets from it, the stream that comes from it is the exact same one as the touchpad. Yeah. So there's and so all of that packet parsing and stuff that's all being done in the hid layer that we already have in US in OpenBSD that was used for USB originally, and then the Bluetooth stack that we had for um, a few years used the same thing, and now I'm using it in I2C. So I actually have a um, big diff that I'm waiting to commit that moves all of those hid files out of um, dev slash USB into dev slash hid because none yeah. of it's um, USB-specific anymore. And there's going to be, you know, Bluetooth and I2C and stuff that use the same packet parsing and all that jazz. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so it was uh, one less driver that I had to write. Yeah. I imagine the, the parsing is super uh, similar in all those types of things. Yeah, they all have, like, you tell you query the device and you say like give me all the descriptors for the device and then the device basically tells you like what it can do you know i have three buttons and i have an x coordinate and a y coordinate and a z coordinate and a, a scroll ball or a scroll wheel or whatever so um all that hid stuff is all formalized so you can just there's a you know standard parser for all of those packets that says that it can parse all those reports and everything and it's all the same over USB as I2C or Bluetooth. Yeah, very cool. Did you want to talk about your new board that you got? Yeah, the the TK1. So, I mean, it's really just another ARM board, um, but the kind of interesting thing about it is it's really powerful, um, and it's got, I mean, it's it's a lot like the APU2 board was, where you have. Um, Really nice hardware that's built really well. Um, and actually, this this onboard has a fan on it because um, it's built for, I think, a little bit more intense workload than, uh, than like, the Chromebook. And um, so, it's, I don't know. Let's see here. I have it almost in front of me. No, I don't have it in front of me. But anyway, the, the board itself is, like... Um, it runs on 12 volts, and it has a gigantic power supply. It's like 5 amps, so it, it can draw some serious power. Um, but it, it's got all the JTAG headers, and it's got the serial headers, um, and a whole bunch of instructions for you know running debug stuff on there so you can get started on it. It has um, MMC on board, so you have, I think, 16 gigs of uh, storage, and I think it comes flashed with 
um, U-boot that you can do development work in and you can load your own payload and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So that's pretty nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the board is meant to be, um, literally like a, a, de- a development board where you can, uh, bring up Android or bring up Linux or bring up a new operating system. Mm-hmm. So it has all the debugging abilities and, um, peripherals, uh, HDMI and Ethernet and, uh, it actually has a serial ATA plug, and it looks like um, MSATA or M2. I can't tell which one it is. So it's actually got a, a lot of features for $100. It's a pretty capable ARM board, and uh, I'd like to get NetBSD or FreeBSD ported um, or their work ported over to OpenBSD and see how far it gets. Um, I've been talking with... Uh, with Patrick a little bit. Um, he, he did a lot of the work on ARM on OpenBSD and, uh, we, we were kind of talking about, you know, what the problems were with my Chromebook when I left off with it. And, and both of us were kind of assuming that there's some issue with PMAP and, um, Dale Ron had written a new PMAP and, uh, Patrick sent me a diff for it not too long ago. And I read through the entire PMAP that Dale wrote and, uh, I mean, the first thing is, is that, uh, my first exposure, you know, hacking on, uh, ARM stuff and kernel stuff was in PMAP in Budapest in 2013. And I read that file and I was like, I'm not really sure why all this stuff needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell at the time if it was, uh, written poorly, or if I just didn't understand the intricacies of how that needed to work. Well, anyway, uh, suffice it to say, when I read through this new PMAP, um, it's really easy to understand what's going on, and um, the the code itself, you know, we can we can read it and understand what should be happening, and be able to spot bugs really really easily, uh, locking and things like that, and. The other really cool part about it is it it puts us in a little bit better place if we ever get ARM to SMP. Mm. Um, so hopefully, you know, I can kind of take a whole bunch of bits and pieces and, and start to put them together and get uh, a good development platform for ARM for me and uh, bring in this new stuff and start to make some headway with it. We have all the pieces. I have all the pieces. I just need to get some time and some focus on it and uh make some headway with all of it yeah so when you uh when you pick up these new arm boards like are you looking for something specific on them that like the other ones don't have or yeah i mean so a lot of the early stuff like um the beaglebone that is a really underpowered not very useful machine and the first one that i bought and, uh, I don't know, back in 2012, it was like, uh, the Panda board and it was useful. I mean, you could build a kernel in relatively quick time. I was serving web pages off of it. It was low power. It was really useful. And since then, there's been a lot of really low powered, uh, boards like the BeagleBone and, and all that kind of stuff that have GPIO, which is useful for certain things. If you want to, you know, run a NLCD or something like that, those were useful. So we were trying to get those working and then they mostly worked. Um, and they had USB and they had Ethernet. And, um, 
that was a, I mean, the, the beagle bone was actually pretty useful because um, of all the GPIO it had. So then, after we did that for a little while, um, I sent all my panda boards to someone to, to start doing builds. And um, so I lost all my working arm hardware that was, you know, usable and, and quick. And, you know, it wasn't like, oh, it's going to take you 36 hours to build a kernel in, in the rest of user land. So then I started to try and find ARM hardware that I could bring up again that was not as expensive and was powerful enough to, you know, do builds and build kernels and tinker with and had good documentation and all the plethora of other things that you're trying to find when you're, you know, looking for good hardware. So, for instance, the NVIDIA Tegra board has good documentation, has a good support community around it. NetBSD and FreeBSD both support the, the board. Um, so I have something that I can reference because it's just a, too much work for me and beyond my skill set to bring up an entire platform. But the hardware is useful. We have good community support. Um, and the, the other thing I liked is that it has um, serial ITA on there. So hmm. when we want to start doing builds, uh, maybe we can start to do ARM packages again if I can get this thing running, because you can hook up a serial ATA drive on there and have some usable storage. Right. So, I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of things you want to look at, but that that's generally what happens when I get on my Quest. I, I really liked, um, like, my Acer Chromebook that has the same system on chip. I'm getting, like, ten and a half hours of ba- battery life out of it. Hmm. And it, it feels smooth, like my... Um, like when I'm using Chrome in there under uh, Chrome OS, mm-hmm. it's usable. I'm not like, oh, I have 60 tabs open. It's starting to get slow. It's It just always performs. And so uh, I, I kind of got that hardware, and I was like, okay. So this is a pretty usable platform. If we could get OpenBSD working on this, it would it would feel like a computer and not an embedded piece of junk. Right. So uh, In a past episode, we were talking about... Um hardware and i was saying that um one of the problems to trying to port something oh i think it was the chromebook that i got that i was looking into Mm -hmm. um and i was saying like by the time i get it working on there they might not even sell that machine anymore yeah do you think that that's that will happen with these arm boards that you're working with too is that like you'll get it working and then like they'll come out with a new version or something like the uh wasn't the Raspberry Pi, like, isn't the new version incompatible with the old ones? I don't know too much about the Raspberry Pi. Um, they had some Broadcom chip on there, but Patrick actually um, made, he took his work in Vitrig and he moved it over to OpenBSD Current. Mm-hmm. And he actually got the Raspberry Pi booted um, rather far. I don't know the specifics of it, but he's been tinkering around with it, so... Um, I guess in, it can be made to work, but I think again he hadn't investigated. But we also think that that was the same PMAP issue that was plaguing the Chromebook at the time. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I kind of I kind of wonder. So there's two things. One is the board going to be made anymore? In the case of the Chromebooks, um, the HP Chromebook that I have still is being made, which is wonderful. Um, but then is it still useful in four years? You know, I mean. Right with as heavy as of our, our applications are getting, is it still going to be 
um, usable under the browser conditions or that kind of stuff. Um, and I think a lot of times, not really. Uh, they're getting so fast, so quick that, you know, it just takes so much time to bring something up that it's obsolete before we can get it running. Right. And, like, it's not like an old Vax or something where you can find lots of those for sale if you want to tinker with them. Like, once those boards go out of production or they move to a new version, it's going to be pretty hard to source those, I would assume. Yeah. Or at least source enough of them that, like, you know, users can start buying them and, and use them. Yeah. And and that's why I think the NVIDIA one is a little bit better risk than some of the other ones have been. The BeagleBone stuff and the Raspberry Pi obviously have a huge community following. Mm-hmm. So they're inexpensive and they're making somebody money and people keep asking for them. So they're going to keep making them. Um, but the interesting thing about the NVIDIA board is that um, it's the first kind of like flagship device from um, NVIDIA and Google and VMware. They're trying to do something interesting with the Chromebooks um, where they want to run like AutoCAD programs on a Chromebook. So they have all these GPUs packed in that little uh, uh, TK1 so that you can run an AutoCAD program on a uh, server somewhere and have the display um, you know, rendering on the on the Chromebook. So, like a thin client. Yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly what they're trying to do. Um, but anyway, I'm hoping that um, you know, since they have a dev board, since they have a Chromebook, since they have this big publicity stunt, that they'll be around for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do have another one coming soon. I think it's the X1, NVIDIA X1 or something like that, which is supposed to have 256 GPUs and a bunch more stuff. So once once ARM starts to do the 64-bit server stuff, uh, you'll, see, you'll see a lot more stability, and I think it'll make a lot more sense for us to support uh, that kind of stuff in OpenBSD, whereas this stuff is kind of like a hobbyist board that is useful to you um, you know, to serve some web applications or run a an LCD or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Carl agrees. <laughs> well said, Carl. Related to the OpenBSD news that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. um, there is a, a network driver for Zen that was committed uh, today, I think, and Reich has posted a OpenBSD AMI on the Amazon like AWS market thing. So you can just fire up a new Amazon AWS thingamabob and boot OpenBSD. So you all should go do that and uh, report back whether it works or not. Yeah, actually, uh, wasn't there also something in ports that was sent recently too? Um I can't recall what it was. There was something to be able to look at your AWS information, I think. There's a new port called S3 Command, CMD, mm-hmm. and it's a command line tool for uploading, retrieving, and managing data in an Amazon S3 or other cloud storage provider. I guess that's not the same thing now, is it? I was watching a uh, like a video podcast thing with 
there were like four people talking about free software and one of them was Richard Stallman and he's quick to tell people not to use the word cloud and just call it someone else's computer because <laughs> like you're not putting your data in the cloud you're just putting your data on someone else's computer yeah it's very very true I was watching um, a YouTube video yesterday and uh, there's a, a YouTube channel like Linus Tech Tips or something like that and you know he he's always giving people computer advice and tech tips and usually it's it's hardware related i see a lot of like hardware reviews and they're doing like water cooled systems and submersing an entire machine in oil and that kind of stuff um but they had a a problem at work where they were you know they were going to lose all their data and i think what happened was um the motherboard went on this machine and uh it took out one of the firmwares on the RAID controller. He had three RAID controllers in there. Each RAID controller had six disks and a RAID 5. And then in Windows, he had those three storage arrays RAIDed together in another RAID 5. And uh, <laughs> and I kind of got a kick out of it. But, uh, you know, when we joke about doing cloud computing and, um, you know, putting your data on someone else's computer, I think after seeing some of the, the tangled webs that I've seen, maybe it's safer if some people don't uh, put the data on their own computer. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not meaning to pick on him, but I've seen stuff that's way worse than that. And uh, they went through a lot of grief to get their data back, and they did wind up getting their data back. But, you know, sometimes it's best to put your data on someone else's computer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, good. That's all I had for tonight. It wasn't very much, but um, I think it'd be interesting to talk about, um, do a, a week review of what's happened in OpenBSD because there's a lot that's changing in different areas of uh, ports and base and Zenokara and all that kind of stuff. So we should summarize that on a weekly basis and hopefully um, it lets our listeners know what's going on with OpenBSD. Yeah, I kind of noticed that uh, in listening to the BSD Now podcast, when they do the news, um, it seems like more things change in OpenBSD than uh, in either of the other major two projects. Yeah, yeah, there always seems to be something interesting going on in OpenBSD. I mean, we have all that network uh, stack work that MPI is doing, and uh, mm -hmm. Sasha has been, you know, working on PF to get it to work across uh, multiple CPUs well, and um, there's been a whole bunch of developments happening in the network layer that are flying under the radar but are really cool changes. Um, and, you know, like we were just talking about the Amazon stuff and games coming to OpenBSD and um, browsers being pledged. It's it's a ton happening. Yeah, and uh, I heard some guys writing an I2C trackpad driver too. I mean, I2C stuff is going to be great. I hear there's a whole bunch of hardware that's going to need that. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of great stuff happening. Oh, and uh, Wireless N. We didn't even mention the Wireless N goodness that came to uh, the IWM and IWN drivers. Yes, I am jealous because I do not have any devices that have those anymore. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah. Well, Stefan Sperling, he sent out... Um, he was doing... A whole bunch of work. He and Peter Hessler were working to get IW IWM 
uh, cards supported, and I think those are on the new Carbon uh, laptops. And uh, soon after he had Wireless N working for that, uh, he sent out another diff that I think about 20 people tested in the first 10 minutes uh, for IWN to get um, some different modes. Um, I think, what is it, like HS7 something? I don't know. But yeah, Wireless N, and uh, I definitely, my, my laptop is loving the changes that he's made. And he's still ironing out some bugs, but there's another huge change that uh, that happened. Uh, not only to the driver itself, but all the underlying infrastructure to be able to support the um, hundred some odd modes that uh, that need to be supported for those different wireless uh, modes or settings that those cards can go into. Yeah, I read the uh, just his comments on those diffs, and I'm like, I don't understand any of that, but uh, <laughs> go for it, man. <laughs> yeah, I remember like a year ago. I was just buying like random laptops and stuff, trying to get them to work. And it seemed like OpenBSD had kind of fallen behind in the times, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it seems like it was all just in uh, like the second half of 2015. We got uh, EFI support, GPT support. Um, now we're getting Wireless N, all the new like Intel DRM stuff mm-hmm. that runs on the newer chips. And it's very uh, encouraging and it seems like we can run on anything now. Yeah, um, Ken Westerbeck, he did uh, all the GPT work um, and he was pulling things into FDisk from uh, Joel Singh and I was kind of like tinkering around with that because I needed GPT for my Chromebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, actually this week I was talking with Aaron Bieber, he's one of the ports guys, and he has a 4 terabyte disk and... Um, he went to set it up and run it in OpenBSD, and um, I think he needed to use a GPT disk layout in order to get the whole four terabytes recognized. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, FDisk, IY, GPT, whatever it was, and he got the disk initialized and um, formatted it and mounted it, and he went on his merry way. And that was all, you know, these recent things that have just come about. Um, and they seem to be working well. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, if there's anything that you would like to hear us talk about, um, let us know. You can uh, email us. You can uh, submit comments to us on Twitter. Um, you can also subscribe to the show's RSS feed. And uh, you can find us on iTunes using or whatever podcast application you want to use. Um and if you'd like to talk to us directly about anything, um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at no mercy mod with a K N O W and JCS. Where are you? I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS. Um, yeah. And if you guys have anything you want us to cover or anything like that, just shoot us an email. We're happy to do it. Absolutely. Or if you want to start gaming, uh, we're going to start setting up some Doom servers so that we can uh, <laughs> play. <laughs>